Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. Follow Jelly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz, in this ambitious musical masterpiece that's sure to blow the roof off the theater. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us as we begin our new time today, following morning edition. It's Air Talk every weekday at 9 o'clock. And following us at 11, the NPR News Magazine here and now be a chance for Southern Californians to hear that program from 11 until not, uh, noon. And then, of course, fresh air with Terry Gross. Today, we begin with the very latest on our midterm elections. We'll be talking about the local races, what's happening with early voting, what the early turnout appears to be. And Ask whether the weather, which expected to to include heavy rain tomorrow, what effect that might have on people actually turning out to vote. Then later this hour, I want to hear from you about how you feel about voting. For myself, I'm still really enthusiastic. I get excited about voting every time. I look forward to it. I haven't missed an election since I was legally able to vote. And I want to hear from you. Later this hour, how you relate to the process of voting. But we begin with Frank Stoltz, our civics and democracy correspondent. Frank, thanks so much for joining us and looking forward to tomorrow night when you'll be joining me for the election returns beginning at at eight o'clock. First of all, we continue with a record setting barrage of ads on behalf of the two L.A. mayoral candidates. Just an amazing flow of ads. Yeah, and as an aside, Larry, I just want to say you would vote for dog catcher if you could. I would. I would. Absolutely. <laughs> I think I did one time. Wasn't that an elected office once? <laughs> Somewhere. I yeah, the, the ads are extraordinary. Obviously, uh, most from uh, businessman Rick Caruso, who's spending, you know, upwards of a hundred million dollars on his campaign. Unprecedented, you know, by multiples in L.A. mayor's races, really for any race uh, in California, it's really just extraordinary. You can't turn on the TV. You can't watch a YouTube video. You can't really do anything without seeing a Caruso ad. And, you know, I was with uh, Caruso and Bass a couple of weekends ago, and I and I had trouble getting Bass's schedule for Saturday. Uh, and, and Caruso's camp was, you know, more than happy to give me the four places he was going to be in the Valley, which, of course, is a real battleground, the San Fernando Valley. And then later, the campaign manager for Bass said, you know, she spent most of the day fundraising, going to events, trying to raise money in $1,500 increments, which is the, the max that you can give to an L.A. mayoral candidate. Uh, so this is, a, this is a huge advantage for Caruso, not just in terms of getting so many more ads and his name up before voters, uh, but also just in terms of the time spent uh, that Bass has to spend raising money. Well, and, and Bass has a heavyweight in her corner. She's running uh, in in heavy rotation an ad with former 
President Obama, where it's a split screen. They're FaceTiming each other and and the president talking about uh, the importance of of uh, Karen Bass uh, winning as mayor of, of Los Angeles. So she definitely is is getting out there and and getting that important endorsement before the public. But um, it, it's just amazing to think we see all these ads, Frank, and after tomorrow, they will disappear as though an iron curtain was brought down uh, over political advertising. It, it's just uh, feast and then famine. Yeah, two events today in the Merrill uh, race really kind of illustrate the two campaigns as well. Uh, in Westwood at 11 o'clock, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, will speak at a Get Out the Vote rally UCLA uh, with uh, Karen Bass there. Uh, so she's bringing in these heavyweights. She has the backing of the, the Democratic Party. Uh, but then in the afternoon, uh, Rick Caruso uh, will uh, be a, uh, a tavern uh, with the Valley Industry and Commerce Association. Again, the Valley, a huge battleground here. But you know, he doesn't have, you know, the big names behind him, the big political names behind him. Uh, but again, he has the huge money advantage. So that's what we're looking at. And, you know, the, obviously the, the thing he's he's tried to overcome is that he's been a lifelong Republican and, and only recently became a Democrat. So, you know, that's that's one question. And I think both of us, Larry, have talked about this in the in, in the past that in L.A., you know, homelessness uh, and an uptick in crime are really the big issues. So the question is, you know, will we turn to. Uh, businessman, uh, very much like the city did back in 1992 Reardon. after the riots, right, and, and elected uh, Richard Reardon. We're talking with KPCC, LA's civics and democracy correspondent, Frank Stoltz, who'll be with me tomorrow night for our live election return coverage, starting at 8 o'clock tomorrow evening right here on KPCC. And of course, join us Wednesday morning for Air Talk 9 o'clock and morning edition before that, as we'll have all the updated returns in these important Southern California races. Uh, also with us is the interim assistant registrar of voters for San Bernardino County, Stephanie Shea. Uh, thank you so much, Stephanie, for, for being with us. Uh, what are things looking like with the early turnout for voting in San Bernardino? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, things are going really well. Uh, things are going as planned, and, and you know, the voter turnout is, is uh, as expected. And and did you expect that there would be a particularly heavy early turnout in the county? Actually, we don't really uh, predict the voter turnout, but in comparison to the 2018 election, which is fairly similar, uh, the numbers are are, are looking uh, quite similar. Uh, as of uh, last Saturday, we had almost 15% of voters returning their ballot. And uh, about 174,000 ballots returned as of Saturday. And in the 2018 election, about 163,000 ballots were returned. So it's trending a little bit above what you saw four years ago. Now, there is rain forecast for tomorrow, some of it heavy. Do you anticipate that that might have an effect on the turnout at vote centers? You know, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the rain and the weather. We are expecting snow and uh, rain in, in some areas of the county. Um, it, it may impact voters going to polling places. It may impact that, but we do offer other ways to vote, which is voting by mail. Uh, we also allow uh, voters to drop off their ballots at drop boxes located across the county. So 
We have a few different options um, if voters aren't uh, able to go out to the polling places on election day to vote, but uh, we're prepared for the weather and those impacts and we would just uh, encourage voters to allow a little bit more drive time uh, and to drive safely. One important thing to mention, if you are dropping it in a regular U.S. Postal Service mailbox, it still needs to be postmarked by 8 o'clock tomorrow evening, which is the end of voting time. And and so if, if it's an official drop box that only accepts ballots, you can drop it there up until 8 o'clock tomorrow evening and it'll be counted. But there is no guarantee if you drop your ballot in a mailbox, say at 7 o'clock tomorrow evening, a regular USPS mailbox, there is no guarantee that it will be postmarked by 8 o'clock. Therefore, there is the risk that your vote will not be counted in that circumstance. So, Stephanie, important to let people know if they're going to use uh, a post office or a regular mailbox, that they have to make sure they get that postmark by 8 o'clock tomorrow night for it to be a valid ballot. That's correct. And, and again, thank you for bringing that up. So the ballots must be postmarked by 8 p.m. on Election Day, um, and that is something is very important to note. So thank you. And our polling places close at 8 p.m. on Election Day as well. So we encourage voters to come early to cast their, their ballots early through the mail and uh, just to be cognizant of those time frames. All right. We're talking with the interim assistant registrar of voters for San Bernardino County, uh, Stephanie, uh, joining us, Stephanie Shea. Stephanie, what about um, the questions that your office is getting? Are there particular ones that you're you're hearing repeatedly from voters that they're still figuring out, particularly with the expansion of voting locations that most Southern California counties have undertaken in recent years? Well, we offer 292 polling places around the county. Um, we, we do not operate on a vote center basis. We have polling places in San Bernardino County, and we have 292 of those. Um, we have 76 drop box locations. So, again, there's just, just uh, many different options for uh, voters to cast their ballot. All right. And, and you haven't been getting any particular questions more than other any, any points of potential voter confusion that you've had to deal with? Um, not necessarily. Uh, you know, the security of the elections process is just uh, always a top priority, and we do want to mention that uh, we have a strong chain of custody, and we follow those procedures to a T. Um, you know, whether a ballot's cast through a drop box, early vote site, uh, or polling place, we track the ballot. We make sure there's a chain of custody, and we just make sure that elections process is safe, secure, transparent, and accurate. Have you had any issues with people who've uh, appointed themselves election monitors who've gone out to drop box locations or polling places um, and had voters concerned about that? Arizona, of course, has had a number of these instances where uh, people who've appointed themselves to be uh, monitors uh, have gone out. They've been armed, worn, worn tactical gear, and there have been voters who said that that was intimidated, made them fear to vote. Uh, have you had any instances like that reported to you in San Bernardino County? We haven't had any instances uh, reported to us at this time regarding that. Um, but again, if something happens uh, like that, uh, we encourage the public to let us know right away. 
And if anything happens in terms of voter intimidation on, uh, on election day at our polling places, our staff is trained to handle those situations. Uh, our uh, Sharon McNary asks, what happens at the ballot drop boxes at 8 p.m. when voting ends? Are the boxes immediately locked and emptied? How many people do that work, and are they present right at 8 p.m.? Yes, uh, we have trained teams of two collecting those ballots. Those ballot boxes, uh, the drop boxes are locked at 8 p.m., and so our trained teams of two do collect those ballots. Um, they secure them and seal them in boxes, and they log them. So that process is also very secure. All right. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, for being with us and talking about what happens in San Bernardino County. We wish you all the best with collecting and tabulating the ballots tomorrow. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That's uh, Stephanie Shea, Interim Assistant Registrar of Voters for San Bernardino County. Also joining us is reporter for L.A. Explained, which is L.A.'s uh, vertical looking at everyday issues. Uh, Caitlin Hernandez. Caitlin, thank you for being with us. Um, let's talk about uh, some of the uh, questions and things that are that are coming in to L.A.'s. What are what are some of the biggest concerns? Uh, concerns voters have expressed to this point. Right. Well, thank you for so much for having me, Larry. I appreciate it. Um, you know, we've had a number of questions. Um, people reach out asking, how do I decide in particular about the do, the judicial races on the ballot? So in, in LA County, um, as many might have seen, you're voting for the superior court candidates, but you also are voting at state level for people at the appellate court and California Supreme Court. So we've had a number of questions about that and how um, people can best make their decisions. And the judges, I know, are always a big thing um, in something that we get a lot of traction on at LAS.com with people seeking out information. One of the things, of course, is that the Bar Association does ratings of candidates for the judicial offices uh, as to whether they are qualified and they have they have multiple levels. Um, and that's something that people can find at LAS.com. Yes. In both of our guides, um, it gets a little difficult. So for the California appellate court, not all of the, um, the ratings from the state bar are public, but we include it when it, when it was locatable. Um, but at the county level, if, you know, the rating is there, which, you know, the LA County Bar Association rates them, those are public. So we have that available on each candidate. Um, something I do think is worth noting, though, as my colleague, uh, Emily Elena Dugdale recently reported, um, you know, there's been some, you know, a little bit of controversy recently about whether or not, uh, the LA County Bar ratings are, in fact, unbiased, which they're supposed to be. So just something to keep in mind that these are general guides that maybe can help you determine if a candidate is qualified or not. But at the end of the day, it is still your choice. All right. And just uh, some of the basics for people that are filling out a ballot and either putting it in a drop box or or mailing it. What are things people need to keep in mind to make absolutely certain that that ballot will be counted? Sure. Well, as you mentioned earlier um, about the timing, if you're going to be dropping off your ballot tomorrow, um, something I, I would want to add is that, you know, you can always go into a post office and, and get it postmarked quickly through there. Um, you can vote in person. I think you ultimately just want to be careful that you're filling out the right sections, signing your name where it's supposed to be, or if you're unable to sign, there are directions on the envelope to to put a mark and have a witness, I think above 18 years or older. 
um, confirm that. And so they're, they're, they try to spell it out very clearly on the ballot and on the envelope itself. So just, you know, read carefully, follow the directions and ultimately make sure it's, it's, you know, able to be turned in by 8 PM and you're good to go. All right. We'll continue our conversation with our Frank Soltz and our Caitlin Hernandez. Caitlin with LA Explained at LAist.com. Frank Stoltz covering civics and democracy. And we'll also be hearing from another local registrar about what they're experiencing on Election Day. And later this hour, I want to hear from you. What do you feel about voting? Is it still an exciting experience, if it ever was at the beginning? Is it something you feel differently about now? That'll come up later. Our number for you to keep in mind is 866-893-5722. It's Air Talk in our brand new 9 o'clock start right after morning edition. We'll be here every weekday going forward from 9 to 11. We'll be back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Bunuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Also joining us is Sarah Sidwani of Pomona College to talk with us about what's going on with uh, all the uh, election dates. Sarah, do you you still get excited uh, day before an election with what's coming? Of course I do, Larry. I haven't even <laughs> voted yet, so of oh. course I can't wait to go vote. <laughs> yeah, I usually wait till the till the day of, but I'm just going to be so busy tomorrow between air talk and covering election night that I I actually did did early voting, and uh, yeah. I have to admit I missed the day of experience. I was I was love being there, standing in line, waiting to cast a ballot. So um, you're going to go do that I love, tomorrow. I love- yeah, and I love taking my kids, and you know they usually get the stickers, the I voted stickers as well. So I'm looking forward to it. So uh, just tomorrow, um, what are you going to be as as a professional uh, political scientist going to be most looking forward to, with the understanding that we're going to have very few things decided by the time we go to bed tomorrow night? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the change in how we vote. Um, is so consequential that election night, uh, we, you're absolutely right. We won't know the, the outcome of the election. And we learned that lesson, uh, in the primary stage. 
But what I'll be looking out for is uh, the Latino and Asian American vote in particular. Um, you know, I think in this election cycle, we have seen a whole lot of outreach to Latino and Asian American communities that hasn't happened in the past. Uh, I know earlier you were talking about uh, Rick Caruso's massive war chest uh, that he has, that he's been putting over $100 million into this campaign, which is just an enormous amount of money. Uh, but he's been using it to target uh, voters who have, according to survey data, have have said for decades that no one has bothered to reach them. Um, so I'm certainly going to be looking to see um, what kinds of returns were, are coming out of precincts with high proportions of, of Latinos and Asian Americans in them. What What's your sense of how the extended voting period, which started with the COVID pandemic uh, to give people a longer period of time, safer experience voting, and here in California, then has stayed as, as our permanent uh, longer early voting period, counties like Los Angeles with the vote center model. How has that, in your view, changed the electorate, if it has? Well, certainly, I think I, I think we are seeing changes. I think it's too soon to tell, right? So we haven't been using these methods for very long, so it's difficult to do any studies to really assess uh, the impact or, or make comparisons to the past. Plus, we've had very unusual elections, right? In the 2020 presidential election, we saw record turnout here in California and nationwide. Um, so that certainly may have been an outlier. Um, that being said, I'm taking a look at, at returns for the city of Los Angeles right now. Um, you know, it looks, you know, based on the data from Political Data Incorporated, that Latino turnout, for example, right now is only at 7%, which is pretty low. Um, you know, they break it down by race, by party. Um, so I think that we're seeing ballots come in, um, but we'll continue to see a surge on Election Day, as well as people actually returning their ballots. You know, I, I'm going to go vote uh, in person, I, I decided, but I actually sat down, filled out my ballot, and then I said, ah, why don't I just go in person? Um, so, you know, I, there will be a surge of of mail-in ballots also today and tomorrow. It'll take some time to, to, uh, to count all of those um, and we're, we're still learning to see what, you know, whether or not this is going to have the kind of impact that we wanted, which is to ensure that more people participate in the process. We're talking with Pomona College Professor of Political Science, Sarah Sudwani. Professor Sudwani is also uh, um, was a member of the uh, 2020 Citizens Redistricting Commission, which came up with the independent um, boundaries for the districts in the state of California, something that there's been now a groundswell of support for the city of Los Angeles doing for its council districts in the wake of that racist uh, audio tape that was released, which was really centered on redistricting and political power of of those members of, of the council, those three members. If you have questions about the voting process, we have Caitlin Hernandez of LA Explained at LAist.com uh, to answer questions for you. Our reporter Frank Stoltz is also here. We'll be talking with Frank shortly about the sheriff's race in Los Angeles County. We're at 866-893-KPECC. That's 
1-800-285-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and first name. Peace Train tweeted at AirTalk, I've been living outside the U.S. and not voting for the past six years. I am a California resident. Can I vote on Election Day? I haven't received a ballot in years. Caitlin, can you answer that question? Correctly, it sounds like they're still living outside. No, no, the person is back now living in California, as I understand it. Yeah, I would say as long as they're still registered and you can check your registration status on the um, California Secretary of State's website, they should be able to go in and vote. Um, uh, I'm not too sure why they wouldn't have received a ballot yet. That could be maybe um, their voter registration was maybe listed as an active if they haven't um, gone and voted in recent elections. Um, but if any case, they should be able to go in. And we do also have same-day registration in California. So if there is, you know, any type of holdup, that can also just be handled at a vote center in L.A. County. And that's, that's probably what Peace Train, probably what you'll have to do. Because the odds are after six years living abroad, then coming back to California, uh, Peace Train may not even be living in the same lo- location uh, as before. So that could all factor into it. So again, there is same day registration. You can go to a polling place. Um, you can go to a vote center either today or tomorrow and to register on site. And then, uh, Caitlin, does that become, do you know, a, a provisional ballot? And then they, they check the uh, legitimacy of that registration. Is that how that works? Yes, that would be correct. So uh, I believe it was about a couple of weeks ago, um, there was a deadline to do, you can register online and, you know, vote in person as you usually do. Uh, and that was, you know, kind of like the point, I think it was like October 24th. But past that, if you register past that, even if it's same day, you vote provisionally, um, your ballot pretty much is handled um, like you, you vote the same way. It just gets handled slightly differently. It's counted after election officials can verify your registration, but that's pretty much it. All right. That's our Caitlin Hernandez, reporter for L.A. Explained, part of LAist.com. With us now is Mark Lund, the county clerk, recorder and registrar of voters for Ventura County. Mark, thank you very much for being with us. What are you seeing in the way of early turnout? Well, good morning. Um, it is, it's about pretty consistent as it's been with years past. Uh, folks have, we've got about, at this point, we have about 130,000 ballots that have been returned. We originally mailed out a little over 500,000. So that's roughly, we're looking at a 25% return to, to this date, to right now. And, uh, it's just, it's pretty much business as normal. It isn't overly crowded at the vote centers here this morning. And, of course, tomorrow was a long day. We open at uh, 7 in the morning and go to 8 o'clock tomorrow night. And is, is the uh, the early voting that you've seen consistent with what you experienced four years ago, the last midterm election? Yes, it's 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 pretty consistent. The, the, the difference would be is the fact that is we're voting a different way now. And so I, I'm slow to draw any conclusions from anything because now folks have had ballots in their hands since October since October and early October and they can are either sitting on their ballots reviewing procrastinating like me for example uh and then they turn their ballots in 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 great numbers on actual election day so they get the experience of both uh voting by mail and then actually putting it into a vote center so i'm not really concerned at all about i think we're gonna have a really good turnout 
but it's pretty consistent from years past, all things being equal. We have listener Michelle in Westchester who asks, when do they start counting the votes? Do they wait until tomorrow at 8 o'clock when the polls pl- close, or are they counted as the early ballots arrive? Well, that's a, that, that's a great question. We, we don't tally anything until 8 o'clock tomorrow night. So we are processing ballots and have been since October uh, 10th. And it goes into one server. All the data goes into one server. And then we merge databases at 8 o'clock at night. And that's what turns the data into votes. So nothing gets gets counted until 8 o'clock tomorrow night. And, and no one would have access to that information before 8 o'clock tomorrow night to know what the what the early voting tallies are no they uh, nobody has access to that there's all all the activities that we do in the in the voter information system that we have here they're all logged there's 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 a there's a tail for every for everything that we do and and we're not supposed to it's against the law to 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 be tallying before 8 o'clock so all of our all of our people that are in this in the particular area of our elections division that actually is responsible for that particular activity uh, it's it's a small it's a small group and they all know that you know we'll look at it when everybody else looks at it all right so what's happening right now then it sounds like as you receive votes either through the mail or drop boxes or people dropping off in person their filled out ballots those are being opened and fed into the machines that that do the processing that is happening at this point Yes, it, that is that's exactly correct. That's exactly what's going on right now for those that we can process. Now, some of the ballots don't have signatures on them, and and we're doing signature verification as well because before we can count a ballot, we have to verify that whether that's a legally submitted ballot from a Ventura County voter. So if we don't have a signature on the ballot uh, as it's returned to us, then we have to to do that homework, which we get a hold of the, the voter and ask them to provide us uh, a signature. We keep all signatures that we've ever received over time. We've digitized everything. So we're able to identify a signature and count that vote if by chance they forgot to leave the signature or put the signature on the ballot when they submitted it, which happens fairly often. We're talking with Mark Lund, the county clerk, recorder and registrar of voters for Ventura County. Is that the same with, and you may have said this and maybe I missed it, with someone leaving the date off, you you contact them to to verify the date of that or or how does that work? Well, if it's a date that they're putting on it, that isn't as important as a signature. So I don't think we would we would follow up. We don't follow up if the date uh, is on on their handwritten by the voter. The date that's important is that anything that we receive after tomorrow night yeah. has to have the election or the post office's postmark for the eighth of November. That's that's kind of the key. So it's not so much when the voter putting the date on. It's the it's that the the vote that we receive after election day has a November eighth postmark on it from the post office before we can accept it. Mark, also before I let you go, have you had any complaints from voters about what they've perceived as efforts to intimidate them or uh, illegal electioneering at uh, locations? Has has that been at all an issue? to your knowledge, in Ventura County? 
we've had a few reports of it, probably less than five of those. And once we had the election officers approach those individuals and ask them to leave um, or not intimidate, they, they ceased their activities. So nobody, uh, the police hasn't been called, haven't been called on anybody, and it's been pretty pretty quiet, which is a good thing, and I hope I just didn't jinx myself. Yeah, I know. I, I probably shouldn't have asked you, but but no, I mean, with so much attention on this across the country and what's happened in Arizona, uh, I think it's good to have a sense of whether this is something that voters are dealing with here. Well, that's a great question. I want to tell you that we do get a little bit of that every election. It doesn't matter what's what's out there. So it happens every time. It, it seems sometimes we've had to call the police on folks in, in years past and resolve it that way to have the police tell them that they can't do what they're doing. But this year it hasn't gone that far and it's been very, very minimal. So that's, I'm encouraged by that. That's that's good to hear. Thank you, Mark Lund. Appreciate your joining us to fill, fill us in on what's happening with early voting in Ventura County. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. County Clerk, Recorder and Registrar of Voters for Ventura County, Mark Lunn. Jacqueline in the West Adams District of Los Angeles said, I had a great experience getting my 86-year-old mother registered to vote. Just yesterday, the centers are well-staffed. It's a breezy experience. They didn't mind her registering last minute. Jacqueline, thank you. We appreciate you sharing that with us on AirTalk. Uh, let me go back to Frank Stoltz. Uh, Frank, to ask you about the sheriff race, because this, of course, uh, very, very competitive between the two. Robert Luna, who is the former Long Beach chief, who is challenging the incumbent Alex Villanueva, and um, you know, very starkly different messages of these two candidates. Well, and of course, uh, Sheriff Alex Villanueva upsetting uh, incumbent Jim McDonald four years ago, uh, largely with the help of the Democratic Party, but also with huge assistance, more than a million dollars in spending by the deputies union. Uh, and the union backed him again this time. But we received an odd video from the sheriff on Fridays. He texted it to deputies. Uh, and in this uh, video, he he says, look, the union is not spending spending any money on me this time, and he pleads with deputies to help him. Uh, so it's the union's playing kind of an interesting role this time in terms of endorsing the incumbent sheriff, but not spending the money like it spent last time. And, of course, uh, Luna, the former Long Beach uh, police chief, uh, who has the, this time has the backing of the Democratic Party, you know, which is so important in blue in blue L.A. County. So we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, uh, uh, crime and homelessness looming large in this election, uh, like all elections. And Villanueva, you know, saying he's the guy who went and cleaned up Venice and Olvera Street uh, and even has said that he told me that he could clean up homelessness in, in 90 days in Los Angeles with a military style operation. So, you know, he's made some big promises. We'll see how he does. All right, Frank, as always, thank you and look forward to uh, working with you tomorrow night on our KPCC 
the latest election returns beginning at 8 o'clock tomorrow night right here on KPCC. We'll also have NPR coverage starting at 5, uh, right out of All Things Considered, the very latest on the big national midterm elections from NPR across the country. And, of course, Wednesday morning when you wake up, you're going to want to know what's been tabulated overnight. We'll have those returns for you, Suzanne Watley, on Morning Edition, NPR with Morning Edition with the national results on those hotly contested gubernatorial and senatorial and congressional races. You'll get all that as well as the local returns from Suzanne. And then I'll be joining you in our new time at 9 o'clock Wednesday morning. Be with you with the very latest on the returns. My thanks for joining us, Caitlin Hernandez, reporter for L.A. Explained at LAS.com. You'll see Caitlin's uh, all kinds of answering of questions uh, about a variety of different voter concerns and issues. Thank you, Caitlin. Sarah Sadwani, professor of political science at Pomona College, also joining us. Thank you, Professor. Such a pleasure to have you with us. So coming up, I want to hear from you. How do you feel about voting now? What is that experience like for you emotionally? Do you take joy in it? Do you feel like it's a dutiful experience without particular joy? What is it like? We're at 866-893-KPCC. That's 866-893-5722. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk at our brand new time, 9 o'clock every weekday coming right out of Morning Edition so we can be right on top of news as it's happening, reacting to events, whether you're heading into work or heading out to do any kind of activity in the 9 o'clock hour. We're now here for you every weekday. Air Talk from 9 to 11, followed at 11 o'clock by NPR's Here and Now News Magazine. You'll have a chance to hear that taking us right up to Fresh Air with Terry Gross at noon here on KPCC. I want to hear from you right now, though, what the act of voting is like for you these days. There's so much emphasis on the importance of of um, executing one's either civic responsibility, as some see it, or right to vote. Uh, for me, I continue to be so enthusiastic about the process. I remember the excitement I had when I could first legally vote. And 
And every election since then, I still um, – it probably doesn't surprise you for someone who talks about um, candidates and issues and ballot propositions regularly. It's still a source of, of great pleasure for me. I actually enjoy the process of studying up and voting. And in fact, I do additional study for my own personal voting, even though I do the prep and the segments that we do for all of the different measures. And as you can imagine, as a result of of doing this kind of coverage, I get asked a lot by people I know, well, can you tell me about this? They never ask me, you know, how are you voting? And I don't talk about that. But but ask, you know, what about it? And I'll give them just like I would on the air. Well, hear what the supporters, hear what the uh, opponents say, uh, who's funding on both sides of this and what the trade-offs involved are. For me, it's an enjoyable experience. But what about for you? How do you feel about voting? How does casting your vote make you feel? We're at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and first name. One of the things that we hear each election is, this time young people are really poised to turn out to vote. And um, that typically does not happen. We do not tend to see particularly high younger person turnout for voting. But we held over Professor Sadwani of Pomona College because, uh, you know, she's she's got real cream of the crop students at Pomona College who I'm sure her students are very politically motivated, active, engaged. Professor Sadwani, what do they say about voting itself? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. And, and the students at the, at Pomona and the Claremont colleges, but I think more, more generally, I'm certainly dealing with students in a political science classroom. You get students that tend to be very interested, very engaged. Um, you know, students that, that are in tune, uh, with some of the key debates going on, particularly around racial justice and social justice and, um, transforming uh, the, the criminal justice system, for example. So, so I think those are many of the kinds of issues that tend to motivate a lot of, a lot of students. Um, certainly overturning Roe v. Wade has been a big, uh, big topic on college campuses this fall. Um, so certainly we do see enthusiasm amongst students. Um, that doesn't always lend itself to seeing large turnout yeah. uh, amongst younger voters. Well, and that that was what I, I was just going to follow up with is that's not unusual to see that level of political engagement on campus. But the actual casting of a ballot, as you suggest, is a different thing. Have you seen anything more in the way of, of actual um prompts to get students out to vote with with anything going on on campus well i have to admit i haven't been on campus this fall but oh that's right you're <laughs> i forgot yeah you're <laughs> but you know i i think in the presidential election uh two years ago there was a lot of momentum at that point and that and that tracks right we tend to see uh, much more engagement in presidential elections because it's so much more in your face. Um, Here in California, we don't have any uh, very contentious statewide elections, right? Governor Newsom 
you know, is by all intents and purposes going to sail to victory quite easily. Uh, the attorney general's race, not terribly contentious. Um, so perhaps the most contentious races on the ballots here in L.A. County, if you're in the city, would be the mayor's race and L.A. County being the sheriff's race. Um, those are those are. Uh, races that don't always in, get a lot of students enthusiastic about them. The mayor's race might be a little bit different, uh, but the sheriff's race, mm, you know, students don't, especially if they're not from Los Angeles County, might not know a lot of the the details about who these candidates are or how they distinguish themselves. Mayoral races, I mean, I think that that is where a lot of the identity politics comes to play, especially amongst younger voters. Well, and and it's challenging in California to build up that enthusiasm around the statewide races for the very thing that you said, that it is such a Democratic Party dominant state. And for a Republican to win statewide office is such an upset here. Now, Lan He Chen running for controller is is uh, uh, against Malik. Cohen, um, that's one where he actually has a number of endorsements of newspapers that typically endorse on the Democratic side. So that could be a very close race between the two of them. But but that would appear to be the only statewide office that's a really competitive race. I think that's right. And uh, yes, certainly Lani Chen has received the endorsements, for example, here uh, the lo- of the Los Angeles Times, which was a, a big endorsement for him. Um, but at the same time, at the primary level, there were so many Democrats in the race uh, in our open uh, top two primary system. That really, you know, I think what a part of what we're seeing is is Democrats splitting the vote there. Um, so I'll be really curious to see if those endorsements uh, can help boost Lani Chen, uh, or if uh, now that there's a Republican versus a Democrat, if Democrats just coalesce yeah. around Malia Cohen and, and and let her sail to victory. That being said, you know locally we see a lot of Democrat on Democrat races. Um, the mud is being slung, most certainly. Um, so I think there's there's so many different dynamics kind of happening, given given the structure of our elections here in California. Yeah, and and interesting to see within Democrats different approaches to addressing homelessness and and crime as well. We're talking with Sarah Sudwani, professor at Pomona College. We'll continue hearing from listeners like Julio in Pasadena who says, "I don't believe in voting by mail. I think it's wrong." It's more exciting to go in person. All right, Julio. Uh, I appreciate it. Diane in Cyprus says, I really enjoy the process of voting. My only concern is the crazy amount of money that's spent on ads. It's a waste of money. That's Diane in Cyprus. We'll hear from Jesus and from Jimmy when we come back in just a moment on Air Talk. in Southgate says it's important for those of us who come from immigrant families to vote. I try not to take it for granted. I go through the voter guide with my husband item by item just to make sure that he's voting. That's Liz in Southgate. Aaron in Tarzana says, I'm a fill-out-your-ballot voter in the privacy of my own home. I dropped it off yesterday in Tarzana. I don't find it particularly helpful to go vote in person. I like the privacy. That's Aaron 
in Tarzana. We're asking listeners on the day before the midterm elections to share your thoughts about voting, what you like, what you don't like. Is your enthusiasm still there for it? Let's talk with Jimmy in Long Beach. You're on Air Talk. Jimmy, what is voting like for you this time around? Good morning, Larry. Um, it's very it's very mixed. I, I'm nearing 40, and I've, I've been voting with my family all of my adult life. And as, as a black and Mexican person, I I know that, that it's a privilege and how important it is to get out and to vote. But with the way our systems are set up, it, it's really difficult to feel like anything that we vote on really ever comes to fruition. So that could be very disappointing at the same time. Yeah, but you still do it. Despite the disappointment, you're, you're still committed to the process. My... Yeah, absolutely. I, it, it would be I'd be disappointed in myself. And my grandpa always said, if, if you're going to complain about anything in society, the least bit you can do is go out and vote. So, so that's the smallest step I could take. So, absolutely, right. I'll never t- stop taking that step. Jimmy, you have uh, in Long Beach, of course, a highly competitive mayor's race as as well as all the other races we're talking about. Jimmy, thank you very much. Good to have you with us. Let's talk with Jesus in Mar Vista. Um, your thoughts about voting. I love it. You know, I've, when I turned 18 back in 2000, that was the first time I voted. Uh, obviously, it was a huge election. Um, you know, it was disappointing. Uh, I had voted for, for Gore. But, you know, I, as to, over the years, I've sort of changed how I sort of select a candidate, uh, especially for some of the smaller candidates I'm not really aware of. I, I look at where they're fundraising, uh, where they're getting their fundraising from. And, um, you know, and their independent expenditures and who's giving to who. And so that, that's how I, I'm able to sort of sit through all the noise. Because a lot of times they'll have the same kind of talking points. But it's really who's giving them funds and, and able to provide them with those those dollars that really, for me, it, it makes sense to, to see that and, and how their values are in accepting those kind of dollars and, and endorsements. And I assume you also, by extension, figure if they're getting money from whatever the particular interest group is, that then if that person's elected to office, they're going to be representing those interest groups with their votes. Exactly. Exactly. There's a, you know, there's a pay to play kind of politics and especially in the city of L.A., uh, unfortunately. And we've seen that lately with, with what's happened uh, with the previous uh, with the previous council president and. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of a reckoning. I think people should definitely look at who's giving to who and uh, and why they're giving to them. Jesus, thank you so much. Appreciate your joining us. Did I hear a little one in the background there? Was that... Uh, My little son, Emilio. He, that's great. Uh, we, we canvassed together, getting him super involved. And so when... I was going to ask. Yeah, so do you, so you involve him in the process. That's good to start young with that. Because, you know, if we don't vote with our, you know, use our voices by voting, like, you know, we're not going to make any improvements. That's that's the reality of things. Jesus, I appreciate it so much. Yeah, I remember taking our our son when he was little, you know, right into the um, uh, polling location to cast a vote, get him acclimated with the whole process uh, when he was very, very young. Jesus, thank you for joining us in Mar Vista. Uh, 
uh, Kavon, uh, or Kivon, I'm sorry, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, in Claremont. So, uh, I want to talk about campaigning. It leaves voters confused. It just covers the real conversation of what the candidate is trying to achieve. Well, of course, that's, that's a longstanding issue that people campaign on what they perceive the voters are going to react to, not necessarily what the candidate is actually going to do once elected to office. And and that's the process as well for a voter is to try and determine how much do you think what the candidate is saying is really a reflection of, of that person's priorities as opposed to what they think polling indicates that voters want to hear. That's one of the reasons I think that the one-on-one candidate interviews that we do on AirTalk are particularly important, because I do think it gives us a bit of a sense by the way the candidate talks about a particular issue or priority of how well they know that subject, how deep the commitment is. Is this something that they just use buzzwords and just sort of, you know, talk about it in the nomenclature of, of the issue, but they're not, they're not really in the nitty-gritty grasping with what the issue and the challenges and trade-offs it entails. I think a lot of that comes through um, during the course of those sorts of one-on-one interviews, uh, which you can hear, by the way, all of the election coverage that we have done on AirTalk by going to kpcc.org, and you can search through our AirTalk archives for all of that. And, of course, in-depth election information is available to you at your convenience before you fill out your ballot when you go to LAist.com and you'll see the voter game plan is available to provide you with that very, very valuable information at LAist.com. Just a reminder that our in-depth coverage of tomorrow's election throughout the day tomorrow here on KPCC, we'll be talking with more of the registrars in other Los Angeles, uh, Orange County uh, vote centers to hear what's going on. And tomorrow night, Frank Stoltz joins me along with an array of KPCC LA's reporters to share what's happening on election night when the polls close at 8 o'clock. And then, of course, Wednesday morning when we'll have many more of the votes counted, in-depth coverage on Morning Edition with Suzanne. And I'll be with you at 9 o'clock, our brand new time each day for Air Talk. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. 
for what's now the second hour of Air Talk, 10 to 11 o'clock, NPR's Here and Now. News magazine program available now here in Southern California every day at 11 o'clock, leading right into Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Coming up later this hour on Air Talk, we'll take a look at a judge shooting down the merger of Random House and Simon and Schuster. What would have created a publishing behemoth? It would have reduced the Big Five to the Big Four, but uh, the Justice Department uh, sued to stop that merger on antitrust grounds. They're successful, at least at this point. We'll talk about the future of the publishing industry, particularly for those major companies. And we'll talk with Kevin Hazard, who is a TV writer and former paramedic who's written the book American Sirens, uh, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics serving the Hill District of Pittsburgh. Uh, that's the area, by, by the way, that August Wilson in his extraordinary plays writes about, um, that district of uh, predominantly African-American of Pittsburgh. So we'll talk about the very first paramedics who were a team of black men uh, with ambulances in Pittsburgh. We'll hear about that coming up later this hour. But right now, we turn our attention to rising incidents of anti-Semitism. As you perhaps saw, uh, Brooklyn Nets uh, player Kyrie Irving suspended at least five games after linking to an anti-Semitic film on his social media accounts. Kanye West, of course, with his uh, social media um, pronouncement about um, American Jews. And we've had leafleting of anti-Semitic material material in places like uh, Beverly Hills, San Marino, and other Southern California communities. My question for you is, what have you personally experienced, if you're Jewish, or had direct contact with that you've seen as as, as recent and anti-Semitic? I'm interested in knowing what, if anything, your synagogue, or if you're a member of another Jewish organization or institution, how it is responding to this? What sorts of conversations are taking place? What sorts of actions in response to this are you directly witnessing? We're at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your location and your first name. With us is David Lehrer, the president of Community Advocates, Inc., a local nonprofit organization that focuses on racial relations. Uh, David's also the former L.A. region director of the Anti-Defamation League, position that he held for almost three decades. David, thank you very much for joining us. You know, I'm, I'm struck how um, not that many years ago, when you would come on air talk and, and talk about anti-Semitism, you would talk about how much it was in decline, how much progress that appeared that we had made as a nation. Has, has that largely reversed? I don't think so. I mean, I think a lot of the new... Hello, Larry, first. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I think a lot of the uh, uh, media attention is focused on hate crimes. And hate crimes, per se, are not a particularly accurate indicator of of, uh, attitudes with regard to Jews or any other group. It doesn't take uh, a large group to engage in uh, either a shooting or leafleting or, or putting banners up. 
So that's really nothing new. Uh, what is new and I think is deeply troubling is the uh, failure of leaders to speak up with incidents of anti-Semitism, whether it's Kyrie Irving or it's uh, Kanye West or it's Donald Trump. I mean, these folks echoing the tropes of anti-Semitism that are as old, that are millennia old, are deeply troubling. And the fact is, for most – I've been in this business for almost 50 years of civil rights – in, I, I can't think of another instance when the political leader would sanction, would either make, mouth anti-Semitic beliefs or fail to speak up in the face of really gross and vulgar anti-Semitism. I think that has changed. The good news is that most of the polling indicates uh, that despite people's fears and concerns, anti-Semitic attitudes haven't changed a whole lot. Now, the, admittedly, the poll is a year and a half old, but the ADL poll found that 11 percent of the American public harbors anti-Semitic stereotypes, which hasn't changed over probably a decade or two, uh, as contrasted with, with the attitudes of, let's say, 1964 when they first did those polls, when it was 29%. So, uh, you know, it, it, there's a danger of thinking that these isolated instances, and there are a good number of them, are somehow indicative of a attitudinal change on the American public in the American public. I'm not sure that's the case. I have to say that I, I was I was distressed to see in the wake of of Kyrie Irving and initially with Kanye West, it seemed like the reaction was quite muted. And in the case of Kyrie Irving, I kind of expected there'd be, uh, you know, a number of NBA players and other people in the league who would really come out forcefully and denounce um, him linking to that that racist film. And it just it it seemed like people were very reluctant to criticize. Criticize him again with Kanye West, and perhaps because he's spoken openly uh, about what he says is is uh, bipolar illness that um, y- you know that's made made people maybe early on reluctant to criticize his comment. Um, but yeah, it it it's not to the degree I would have expected. Were you surprised, David? Yes, I agree with you. I would have thought that it would. The, the, these are easy ones. These are not tough cases. I mean, the vulgar anti-Semitism that Kyrie uh, mouths and the stuff from Kanye is just lunacy. Uh, so that should be easy to oppose. And the failure to speak up is kind of befuddling. I'm not sure what that reflects in terms of either management or other athletes assessing what they think the American public is like. I mean, the good news is corporate America, which I suspect has a pretty good a feel for the pulse of America, spoke up quickly and condemned them, Adidas and whoever else he was under, they were under contract to, which is su- suggesting that they understand what the right thing to do is. I must say, you know, uh, when I first started, I helped write the first hate crime law in California in the late 70s. And in those days, if somebody burned a cross on a black family's lawn or did swastikas on a synagogue, invariably was a, a teenager or a young adult, and the penalty was go write an essay on brotherhood. And the hate crime laws changed that. So society reacted generally through the courts and the DAs prosecuting, but they reacted and said that is intolerable behavior. That's kind of been the rule for the past 50-some years, you know, that that kind of stuff is just not tolerated. A perpetrator is ostracized. A perpetrator has to face sanctions. And that seems to be diminishing. People uh, for some reason, people make calculations about their audience and who who, who will tolerate what. And uh, I agree with you. I think it was uh, very disappointing uh, 
the the reaction to both Kanye and uh, and Kyrie Irving. I I just wonder if people understand or just turn a willfully blind eye to the remarkable things that American Jews have accomplished for this country in virtually every arena. It is absolutely astounding to think um, what Jewish Americans have accomplished and contributed from the legal system to science, technology. I mean, the, the, the list is just goes on and on and on. And um, it, it's just amazing that we see these kinds of stereotypes and um, terrible sorts of attitudes that people exhibit. We're at 866-893-KPCC. David, I'm sorry, did you want to say something there? No, I just, it's kind of an aquifer that is subterranean aquifer that anti-Semitism crops up, and it usually crop, crops up through little crevices in the soil, and, and it, you have an incident here, an incident there. I, I fear that uh, the, the cracks are a little broader than they were, and it's cropping up, and we're not, covering over the the crevices yeah. to keep it down where it belongs under the rocks. That's that's the, the danger. Also with us from UCLA, Professor of Political Science and Israel Studies, Dove Waxman. He specializes in contemporary anti-Semitism. Professor, thank you for, for joining us. As you take the temperature of anti-Semitism, what do you see? Well, I think uh, David's absolutely right to, to point out that in, in terms of anti-Semitic attitudes, uh, there's actually been a, a gradual decline over the decades. So we haven't seen, there isn't any evidence as yet of, of, a, of a growth of anti-Semitic attitudes among Americans in general. What's really taking place, I think, is much more the uh, open expression, um, the, less, the more uninhibited expression of anti-Semitic statements, particularly on social media. So it's not really clear whether... Um, people hold more anti-Semitic beliefs so much as that we're more aware of these beliefs because it's much easier to express them nowadays on social media than it used to be where these beliefs were kind of marginalized to a large extent. And Um, that's one of the key changes. And the other key change is the uh, migration of kind of anti-Semitic ideas and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories from the far right into uh, the mainstream uh, right today. Uh, we have uh, Gabriel in Fullerton who says, uh, I'm uh, the daughter uh, of a rabbi and a student in college. I've experienced bomb threats at my temple and hateful comments on social media. The biggest problem is ignorance and not being educated about the Jewish community. That's Gabriel in Fullerton. We're at 866-893-KPECC. I'm really interested in hearing from listeners who are members of Jewish organizations, or work with Jewish institutions, um, are active in their synagogues, to hear how your organizations are responding to this. We're at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Professor Waxman, um, what's your sense of how Jewish institutions are responding to this? Well, I think there's, um, it's certainly shot up to the very top of the agenda for the uh, organized American Jewish community now, uh, nowadays in, in response to this really widespread concern and fear that many Jewish Americans have 
So I think anti-Semitism has become the primary issue for Jewish organizations. Um, but I think there's still an um, uncertainty about really how to respond, other than, you know, uh, calling for these kinds of public apologies and asking Jews to be uh, proud of their Jewish identity. I don't think there's really um, much uh, discussion or understanding about how else we can respond to this, uh, particularly on social media, but also this, um, this growth of these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So I think we're, there's an awareness of the problem, but as yet not much of an understanding of, of where this is really coming from, what's driving it, and above all, what we can do about it. For, for fighting conspiracy theories, whether it's that Jews control the world or media, or what, whatever the conspiracy theory that's trotted out... What is the best way to combat that? Well, I think um, immediately to try to um, engage, rather than just dismiss these ideas outright, to actually explain and walk a person through why they're ultimately illogical, why these uh, conspiracy theories don't make sense, they don't hold up. So I think education really um, is the best way. Conspiracy theories are appealing to people uh, because they offer a relatively simple way of explaining the world, of explaining things that are happening to them, particularly during times of rapid change. So I think the only antidote to that is ex- uh, education and, and particularly teaching people to be uh, better consumers of information and news so they can, can, uh, they can identify uh, disinformation when it appears and they can question the kinds of sources that they're receiving their news from. We're talking with UCLA professor of political science and Israel studies, Dove Waxman. He specializes in contemporary anti-Semitism. Also with us, David Lehrer, president of the nonprofit that addresses local race relations, Community Advocates, Inc. David was also the regional director for the Anti-Defamation League here in Los Angeles for 27 years. Francine in Beverly Hills says, I think the younger black community needs to realize that during the civil rights movement, the Jewish community stood beside them in protests. Um, and I was mentioning, you know, the tremendous contributions Jewish Americans have made to the law, to the criminal justice system. And and David, following up on what Francine is, is saying, are we lacking in in education for Americans to understand this range of contributions that American Jews have made? Well, you know, we've had decades of diversity training in Los Angeles and around the country, so it's not for lack of effort. I just think, you know, it, the, I think the distinction between now and, let's say, four or five or six years ago is that leadership hasn't spoken up to say this is nonsense unequivocally and unambiguously that this kind of stuff is insidious, whether it's stereotyping Latinos or stereotyping blacks or stereotyping Jews. And it's that kind of erosion you know, Trump after Charlottesville, Trump in his campaign about Latinos, Trump talking about blacks and uh, there's my black in the audience, that kind of stuff is really insidious. It's corrosive because it, it promotes stereotypic views of minority groups. And when it comes from the highest office in the land, that trickles down. We haven't had that in decades. I can't think of, not a president since I've been a sentient being. Uh, has echoed those kinds of views. That is corrosive and dangerous. And I think it, it has an impact where, you know, it's okay in the black community, it's okay in the white community, it's okay in all these communities to somehow stereotype them and, and in this kind of vulgar way that 
You know, Jews are good as accountants. I mean, all this stuff. And then on top of that, Trump adds in a victim killing. When he did his tweet a couple weeks ago, you know, Jews aren't supporting me. They should be supporting me because I'm so good for Israel. They better listen. You know, that kind of stuff where he's the victim and somebody else is to blame has become kind of uh, – Kind of why it has not kind of has become widespread and it's very dangerous. I mean, it's incumbent upon leadership to speak up and say this kind of stuff just can't. Professor Waxman, I, I wanted to ask you about the intersection between um, Israel and the American Jewish community and and some of the tropes that exist there, but also the real issue that for many American Jews, there is deep concern about the future of Israel. They're deeply held political views, either supportive of, of an Israeli government at the moment or critical of the actions of that Israeli government at the moment. So can you compare and contrast some of the tropes about American Jews with Israel versus the very real concerns that that many American Jews have about Israel? Sure. So I think the most uh, common trope um, is, is is what's called the kind of dual loyalty trope, this idea that uh, this, this long predates Israel's establishment, actually. It's the idea that Jews uh, cannot be fully loyal citizens to the countries in which they live because their loyalty to themselves, to Jews, uh, precedes any kind of other loyalty. And, and now, and since Israel was established, this idea is that essentially Jews are loyal to Israel and uh, primarily loyal to Israel. And that's um, the kind of anti-Semitic trope that uh, Trump invoked by, talk, by criticizing American Jews, in his case, for actually not supporting him because of his uh, policies toward Israel. So this idea that automatically associates uh, Jews who don't live in Israel, who aren't citizens of Israel, with the state of Israel. And it sometimes can be, can be expressed in, in the demand uh, for Jews to, to have an opinion about Israel, to, to stay, take a stand on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or to, uh, to condemn Israel's actions. So on college campuses, for example, uh, Jewish students may uh, sometimes be called upon to you know, explain Israel's behavior or condemn Israel's behavior in order to be accepted into kind of progressive circles. And that's this assumption that Jews are somehow attached to Israel, responsible for Israel's actions, must answer to Israel's actions. Um, there's also the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that uh, Jews and Israel are, are responsible for all manner of uh, global events, that, uh, that somehow there's this uh, Jewish lobby uh, or Israel lobby that is kind of pulling the strings of governments from behind the string, uh, behind the scenes. And that also evokes a much older anti-Semitic trope that Jews kind of conspire, Kabbalah Jews uh, conspire together to um, influence world events in order to advance Jewish interests. So often these kind of anti-Semitic ideas and tropes and conspiracy theories can emerge in debates and, and conversations about Israel and in uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We're talking with UCLA professor Dove Waxman, professor of political science and Israel studies, David Lehrer of Community Advocates, Inc., with us as well. Let's talk with listener Amanda in West Los Angeles. Good to have you with us. Amanda, what have, what have you experienced? Oh, great to be with you this morning. Thank you for bringing this uh, to a more wide, a wide, a wider audience, especially here in Los Angeles, where I think we tend to think we're safe. I work for a Jewish nonprofit here in Los Angeles, and we have stepped up our anti-Semitism tra anti training and awareness 
Um, internal resources over the last year, we've um, increased security at our office locations. Uh, we are very much aware that it is it is on the rise. We recently underwent a training where uh, the numbers were really terrifying. And I think that it's something that we need to start really addressing. And I appreciate uh, both of your uh uh, both of the, the men that joined this morning, but I do think it's really important also to recognize that the link in anti-Semitic rhetoric is also inextricably intertwined with the rise of Christian fascism and the fact that we are in a battle for our country in that way. And it's all related, the ability to speak openly about all minorities, including Jews, and it's really dangerous. But here at in Los Angeles, for a Jewish organization, we're taking steps to, to be aware of the, the rising um, activity and rhetoric. Um, and it's just something that I think we really need more leaders to take, to take more seriously and recognize that this is, uh, this is now everyday occurrences. It's not just every now and then. And Amanda, what are some of the things that your organization has done to try and um, to beef up? It's, you mentioned that there's uh, training about anti-Semitism uh, and also in increase in, in security. Are, are there any more specifics you can share about that? Um, basically, you know, we, we operate in a number of different locations and we've had a security through the Jewish Federation of Los Angeles come and, and assess what our risks are. Um, we're adding uh, different, we've added different uh, videotaping measures, you know, to make sure that anyone who approaches our office from the outside, we can, we can see who's out there. Um, we are um, also in the process of stepping up some security measures at our camp, which is located in a residential district in Los Angeles, just to make sure if people find out that, 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 uh, that that's something that's associated with the Jewish organization, that they may, it, it, it can be an easy target. Um, we're also just having conversations internally amongst the staff, which consists of people of Jewish uh, faith as well as non-Jews, to really understand the language, where to, what to look for in terms of those little tropes that may seem harmless, but recognizing them for that insidious uh, aquifer that, uh, that uh, was referred to earlier. You know, just to be more mindful that it is something that we need to be just more cognizant of, and also even within the Jewish community itself, recognizing the differences between the different observance levels, and, and of course, also the relationship with Israel, which is a conversation for another time that also gets very, gets the conversation a little confusing between being a Jew in Los Angeles and supporting or not supporting the state of Israel as a political uh, construction. Amanda, great call. Thank you so much for being with us. Re really appreciate it. And I want to thank our, our other guests as well. Dove Waxman, professor of political science and Israel studies. He studies anti-Semitism in the world today at UCLA. And David Lehrer, my longtime friend, president of Community Advocates, Inc., local nonprofit, which looks at race relations in Southern California. For nearly 30 years, he was the regional director for the Anti-Defamation League here in Los Angeles. Coming up on Air Talk, we're going to be taking a look at uh, the publishing merger that appears like it might not be taking place after a judge's decision on Simon & Schuster and Penguin Random House. We'll talk about what comes next for the Big Five in publishing. It's Air Talk on KPCC.
reminder that we are all over the election. You'll be hearing coverage with Austin Cross coming up at 1 o'clock on All Things Considered this afternoon. He'll have the very latest on the day before the official election day. We still call it election day, but of course people are voting for uh couple weeks or more before the actual election day. And it's going to take a number of days to count all the results. We've got to be very patient. We're going to do our best to get you started tomorrow night. Frank Stoltz joins me for our live election night coverage at eight o'clock. We'll get into all the statewide and local races at five o'clock. We start with NPR's live coverage, looking at what's happening in those battleground states where control of the House and the Senate and uh, gubernatorial seats are at stake. That's all coming up 5 o'clock tomorrow from NPR. We'll be on then with our local KPCC coverage starting at 8 o'clock and go into the late night uh, with that for you. And then Wednesday morning when we'll have much more in the way of returns to talk about and perhaps a better sense of who's actually winning, uh, we'll have that for you with Suzanne on Morning Edition and I'll follow up at 9 o'clock with Air Talk. Our brand new time, Air Talk, 9 to 11 o'clock coming right out of Morning Edition here on KPCC. And we're about half an hour away from from the KPCC Daily debut of the NPR News Magazine Here and Now. But right now, we consider a federal judge's blocking of Penguin Random House proposed purchase of Simon & Schuster. The Justice Department had argued and the judge agreed that the joining of two of the world's biggest publishers could lessen competition for top-selling books. The ruling a victory for the Biden administration's tougher approach to proposed mergers. Penguin Random House quickly condemned the ruling, which had called an unfortunate setback for readers and authors. In a statement, uh, the publisher said it would seek an expedited appeal. Joining us to talk about the future of the publishing business in light of this judge's decision, founder and CEO of the Ideological Company, Mike Shatskin. His firm is a consulting business that works with small publishers seeking distributions. Mike, thank you very much for being with us. You know, one of the arguments when you have a proposed takeover or merger like this is to be competitive in this ever more demanding world economically, you need to have size on your side. How compelling an argument was that for Penguin, Random House, and Simon & Schuster that there need to be four major publishers instead of the current five? Well, the the decision, as I understand it, focuses on a very narrow uh, interest group. It's not about what's best for the public or what's best for you and me. It's about what's best for a relatively small number of authors who can who will get bids from just about any big five publisher for their books because they have a reputation and or a platform or something which makes sales pretty much assured. And um, those are the authors for which all of the big five are often in the bidding. And the more companies that are in the bidding, the higher the price goes. And so those authors would certainly take a haircut if there were only four big publishers rather than five. I'm not sure how it really impacts anybody else. Um, and and I'm not sure that the benefits of size matter, but whether the size is Random House size or Hachette size, which is a big five size, or whether it's Cambridge University Press size or Grove Atlantic size, which is not quite as big as big five, 
I don't know that it makes a lot of difference. I think an author can be well served by any. You know, more likely to get a million dollars out of the big five as an advance. What what about for for bookstores with their wholesale sales? Um, of course, there aren't anywhere near the number of brick and mortar bookstores there used to be, but there are still some. Um, how how could this affect them, if at all? I don't think it really affects them at all. Um, I think first of all, you make a, you make a very important point, which is bookstores have shrunk, and it, and back thirty years ago, all the books were sold in bookstores, and the only way you could sell books if you were a publisher is if you could get them in the bookstores. But now it might be as few as a quarter of the books sold in bookstores. And you can sell a lot of books without getting into bookstores at all, which has opened up competition to uh, much smaller entities than the big five. So uh, I, I, don't, I don't think it changes much for bookstores. They, they, they will still, the bookstores can get access to any books they want. And they get called on by the big publishers, and all of these books will be still represented by big publishers. They'll just make small, smaller advances because they'll have fewer entities competing for them. So, what is the advantage for these two companies if if the acquisition by Penguin Random House? was to have gone through, or or if it does in the future, if they're successful on appeal, aside from uh, they're not bidding against each other, it, there's only four companies bidding for signing those big authors. Are there other economies of scale? Other um, Can they drive harder bargains with Amazon, for example, on book sales? Are there any other advantages for them? Um, well, the thing, the nature of the book business has changed. And it used to be that the most important part of the book business was bringing out new books. Um, and that was when, that was true when bookstores were the dominant place to put books out because the only books that were available were the ones that were in the bookstore. And they tended to favor the new ones and they tended to favor the ones from the publishers that called on them more often rather than the ones that called on them less often. But that's not really the case anymore. And what is also what is the case is that most books are sold through some sort of online mechanism. And what that means is you don't have to have inventory in place in a store in order to make a sale. You don't even have to have the book printed because it can be ordered today and printed tonight and delivered tomorrow. So, so in fact, I think that the uh, it, it, it's a it's a world where where the uh, long list of books that you have is important because any of them could pop at any time. So the big houses have gone from places where new books may got made to places where they have tools to get sales for any book on their list. But it's hard to grow the list with new new acquisitions. So the way you grow the list, I mean, new titles. So the way you grow the list is by acquiring somebody else's list. So the point to this is that Random House would have many tens of thousands of new titles from Simon & Schuster to put through their digital marketing team and their online marketing mechanisms to get um, sales on. And it's hard, it's hard for them to have tens of thousands of titles any other way. So that is why it was happening. And what the, big, what the judge seems to have said is that the big five can't acquire each other. So they can continue to acquire, as they all have been doing for, for 20 or 30 years now, but they can't acquire anybody the size that they are. So I think what that means is that the growth of the big five is going to be very
very much slowed down, and um, they'll remain powerful, but they'll be slightly less powerful with each passing year. We're talking with Mike Shatskin. He's the founder and CEO of the Ideological Company. It's a consultancy working with small publishers, also provides strategic insights to the larger firms about managing their supply chain. And with us is antitrust legal expert, attorney, and adjunct professor of antitrust law at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, David Kesselman. Thank you, sir, for, for being with us. Um, what do you think are the the biggest reasons the Justice Department and and the Biden administration de- decided to fight Penguin Random House's acquisition of Simon and Schuster? Well, first, thanks for having me, Larry. Um, so, in terms of that big picture question, I think this goes back to something bigger, which is right at the outset of the Biden administration, there has been this focus on antitrust and this notion that they really want to reinvigorate antitrust enforcement at all levels. There's a real concern within the administration that President Biden himself and then more recently his picks for the the DOJ and the chair of the FTC have said, we've got too much concentration happening in American business. It's allowing for too much power in the hands of too small a group of companies Big tech has gotten a lot of the big, you know, attention, uh, and, and we can talk about that. But here, I think what you're seeing is an effort by the Biden administration to say we're we're seeing a big five, and we don't want to see more consolidation or concentration beyond that. And so, what is particularly interesting from my point of view is the Biden administration has said repeatedly that they want antitrust to go back to some of the original purposes, this diffusion of economic power. We want more players in the market. We don't want to spend so much of the resources of the government focused on efficiency because that doesn't necessarily always benefit workers and employees. And I think this case in a lot of ways, because it's a little bit unusual in its posture, They were trying to set up, and this is my perception, they were trying to set up a test case where they're going to focus on entities with big buying power, and they want to stop concentration among those entities. And so I think this will be fascinating because no doubt it's going to get appealed, but I think it's to set the groundwork for some of the larger initiatives that the Biden administration has announced. So that explains – because Mike Shafkin was saying he doesn't really see this as – have much of an effect beyond those, you know, very top writers who get in bidding wars with the five companies and not much change for anyone else. But if it is largely – symbolic is what you're saying because you have these high-profile companies and publishing is a high-profile business even still that that this does potentially then set the table. So the judge siding with the Biden administration here, do you think that that is going to give other companies that might be looking at, at mergers and acquisitions to think twice? It might. Now, you know, uh, to put the big picture on the table, the Biden administration has been very aggressive in its merger enforcement, far more aggressive than we've seen in, frankly, decades. And they've actually lost a couple of cases more recently. So 
presumably within the halls of DOJ. This was a big win. One of the things that we're still waiting for that will be interesting is the judge issued her ruling. She She's ordering a permanent injunction to prevent the merger, but we don't yet have the full benefit of her findings of fact and conclusions of law. She's given both sides an opportunity to try to work together to have a redacted transcript, presumably because there was, you know, financial information, other information in the record that she relied on. So in the next week or so, we presumably will have the full benefit of her thinking. But the government did go into this with some, you know, some presumptions in their favor. The way antitrust law works and under Section 7 of the Clayton Act, which is the act that uh, DOJ, you know, moved on to prevent this merger, if you get to certain concentration levels in a market, then there is a presumption that that merger is going to be unlawful. And DOJ hit very hard that that presumption was hit here. Now, the defense, you know, Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster, they argued strenuously, and and it echoes a little bit of what Mike is saying, that this market was artificial, that it was really only focused on the very top authors that are able to command, you know, higher advances, 250000 or more on books, I think what the government, and they've said this in their papers, what they would argue back is that's true that that's what this case legally was focused on. But they, at least in their papers, have said there will be other ramifications. Moving from five down to four does take a player out of the market. There's less opportunity then for bidding among and between the big five. And even though the biggest impact will be at these higher levels because that's where the bulk of the money, according to the DOJ, is in the industry. In any situation where you have less competition, you have less competitors, there's a ripple effect. And they try to argue more generally, you may see you know, less authors able to actually put out yeah. books in the marketplace as you see more consolidation. David Castleman, thank you so much for sharing your legal expertise on antitrust law. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Larry. He's adjunct professor of antitrust law at Loyola Law School, antitrust expert uh, with the firm Kesselman Brantley Stockinger. And our thanks to Mike Shatskin, founder and CEO of the Idea Logical Company, which consults with publishers. It's Air Talk on KPCC. Coming up, we talk with the author of the new book, American Sirens, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics. We'll be back in just a minute. Coming up at 11 o'clock, we debut the daily broadcast of NPR's Here and Now. Today, there are reports the Biden administration's told Ukraine's leadership to show openness to peace talks with Russia. This as Ukraine faces blackouts and more infrastructure destruction. It's Here and Now, now weekday mornings at 11, right after Air Talk. And in case you just tuned in to our 10 o'clock hour today, Air Talk is now at 9 o'clock, 9 to 11, right after morning edition here on KPCC. 
When I think of Pittsburgh's Hill District, I think of the extraordinary cycle of plays by the great August Wilson, uh, the setting there for so many wonderful stories that embody the African-American experience over the 20th century. Kevin Hazard's new book, American Sirens, The Incredible Story of the Black Men Who Became America's First Paramedics, take us back to African-American Pittsburgh in the middle part of the 20th century as what weren't even yet known as paramedics begin with the ability of using CPR and responding immediately with emergency equipment to be able to save people's lives on the scene, not just transport them to the hospital for care. Joining us, Kevin Hazard, to talk about his book. Kevin, thank you so much for being with us. How did you become aware of this remarkable story? Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I was a paramedic myself for about 10 years in the early 2000s, and I wrote a memoir about that book, and somebody, or excuse me, about that period of my life, and someone who'd read the book reached out to say, hey, you know, I read your book, and and I thought it was interesting, but do you know how it all began? There's this thing called Freedom House. Have you heard of it? And I had not, and the second I started researching it, I realized nobody had heard of it, and from there, I just sort of fell into a hole that led me to here. And and share with us how um, ambulance services, as as they were at the time, how it began this evolution through this Pittsburgh-based organization of African-American men. Yeah, so 1965, um, essentially what you had in most places in the country, um, you might have the police department who is transporting uh, medical emergencies, and they would generally be in some sort of a wagon, um, would toss you in the back, and, and nobody would ride with you. Um, you might have volunteer firefighters with about 12 hours worth of training, or you might have uh, two undertakers from the local funeral home who would show up in a hearse. So that's what existed through the mid-1960s. And there's a doctor by the name of Peter Saffer who in the 1950s in Baltimore quite literally um, by himself invented CPR. And Saffer, uh, to be honest, he had a, he had a child die um, from an asthma attack. And that experience, uh, you know, he was, he was a doctor. He was an anesthesiologist. Um, when she shows up at the hospital, he's the one who takes over her care, which I can't begin to imagine. He gets a pulse, a heart rate. Um, he gets a, a respiratory, yeah, respiratory rate and a blood pressure back on her. But, He's never able to get any brain activity because she had had no treatment from the onset of this terrible asthma attack until she arrived at the hospital. So, you know, he knows better than anybody that there's this massive hole in the healthcare system and it begins right where an emergency starts and it ends at the, the door of the hospital, which oftentimes is, is simply too, too big a gap to bridge. And so he takes it upon himself to design a paramedic course. Again, as you said, this is a time when the word paramedic does not exist. Uh, but he designs this eight-month training program that's as rigorous as anything you could take today. He pairs it with rotations in the OR, the ER, the ICU, OB, uh, the morgue. Uh, and then he redesigns the ambulance. You know, he knows that the hearse or some sort of a wagon is, is you know, a police truck is not the right vehicle for this. So he designs the modern ambulance as we know it and have it today. Well, and he's... Oh, I'm sorry, I finished that point. I'm sorry. No problem. And so he sets this entire thing up. 
But of course, you know, he has no people. He's got to figure out who's going to run this new job. And that's kind of where the story takes a really fascinating turn. And we'll find out what kind of training uh, the men, uh, later to be called paramedics of Freedom House, received to make Saffir's vision come true. The book is American Sirens, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics. We'll be back with Kevin Hazard in just one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle with Kevin Hazard, author of American Sirens, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics. Kevin, how were the, the men recruited and trained to provide this service of medical care on the scene of the emergency? Well, recruitment is ad hoc, to say the least. You know, this is maybe the world's worst sales pitch. They are saying to people, hey, um, why don't you put your life on pause for eight months and take a training course for a job that technically does not exist? They have a very difficult time getting anybody to accept it, but their pool of people was by design incredibly narrow. So Peter Saffer had partnered with a nonprofit called Freedom House, whose mandate was to provide inspiring job opportunities for young black men who were living in the Hill District, which was not an easy task. And when Freedom House approached Saffer about the idea of forming an ambulance service. Um, Saffer immediately loved the idea because what he wanted was untrained, non-professionals that he could turn into this new force of of medical uh, professional. And so he he needed sort of ordinary people to prove that this was something that could be replicated in every city throughout America. So by design, the first paramedics were going to be black men from the Hill District. And Early on, was there skepticism from, say, police or from hospitals about this? What was the degree of buy-in, particularly before they proved themselves? Well, skepticism hit immediately from the hospitals. Um, you know, like I said, they had these rotations that they would do in various parts of the hospital. They were physically barred from entering the OB floor. The, the nurses would not allow them in. They had to deliver, learn how to deliver babies by watching uh, reel-to-reel videotape. Um, when they showed up at the ER, the nurses handed them mops because they assumed that they were orderlies. So they were sort of being stung by racism at every turn, even as they were, you know, learning this new profession. Then when they hit the streets, you know, as I said before, they were, you know, and depending on where you live, some cities had police departments who ran the, the ambulance service. Well, that was the case in Pittsburgh. So not only was this a literal threat to police jobs, but you know, these were guys who came from a neighborhood with a long history of acrimony with the police department. So when they were on scene, the cops didn't, you know, sort of defer to them as medical professionals. They treated them the way they normally treated people in the Hill, which was with a tremendous amount of disrespect. And anytime there was a disagreement, you know, that often these guys said that uh, the cops would just say, I'm just going to take you to jail. So you can, you can either do it your way and go to jail or you can do it my way uh, and shut your mouth. So, you know, they were receiving pushback almost from the very beginning. You begin in the prologue of the book, though, by sharing uh, an experience of, of a man who is on the streets having a psychological or drug-related break. We don't know. And police come out. And then um, you know, one of, one of um, the people who'd actually worked early on, been trained alongside this man who's having the breakdown, publicly comes and, and police back off 
when they see that he's able to have a conversation and to some degree reach the man in distress. It, it would seem that there was over time some understanding of the value that these men brought as as paramedics to these kinds of circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's a, there's a moment right toward the end of their tenure where a child is struck by a car and it's sort of on the line between several different uh, services and the police officer who's there sees his child who's in grave uh, condition and calls dispatch and says, I need Freedom House. Well, Freedom House Ambulance immediately starts rolling in that direction. The dispatcher who heard this said, well, wait a minute, maybe I should cancel them because there's there's another unit that's supposed to cover that street and this police officer. And again, this was an organization who had fought them for years at this point. The police officer said, no, we need somebody here who knows the hell what knows what the hell they're doing. Um, that was a huge victory for the people of Freedom House because, you know, for for the people who who have you know sort of resisted you the most to acknowledge your prowess and just how how uh, helpful you are on the scene that was that was massive for them and you know and, and that was the beginning at least in the city of Pittsburgh of an acceptance Kevin I have to say this story is very cinematic and um, have you have you heard from uh, individuals interested in, in adapting this to film or television yeah there's there's been a fair amount of interest um, there's certainly you know, like you said, it's very cinematic. It is very timely uh, from a medical standpoint, from, you know, a racial standpoint. Um, you know, in, in every way, this one sort of checks all the boxes. So uh, a lot of phone calls have been uh, flying back and forth. And, you know, well, and my, you can write it yourself. You're a TV writer as well. So you could write it yourself <laughs> yeah. in addition to the book. Kevin, thanks so much. Appreciate your joining us. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. Kevin Hazard, American Sirens, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics. Thanks so much for being with us for our first 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock broadcast of AirTalk in our new time slot right out of morning edition. We'll be here every weekday for you starting at 9. Coming up next, the debut of NPR's Here and Now, a full hour, the very latest on national and international news, and then at noon, Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Have a great rest of your morning and afternoon. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 9. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com.